basically what you have just said was is that now that you're back in the UK when you were in New Zealand, now that you're back, it was like 18 months of a dream. It's just a dream. Is that what you said? Yeah, it, it just feels very insubstantial. Like, I don't know, like, there's nothing, it's just thoughts and memories. Yes. That's and, you know, true. a few things on my phone. Right. Exactly. And it's like, like, I want to reach for it, but it's just, there's nothing there. Well, how many different, um, let us say, religions or groups or organizations or individual gurus or wise men have talked about it just that way? Almost everyone. Yeah, they all talk about it that way. So basically what you're doing now is you're beginning to see the things the way that the wise see things. It's a bit disconcerting. Absolutely. Because you have been living so many years in the habit of being under the assumption of that everything is real and everything is important. And yeah, I mean, I don't particularly mind it, you know, if I'm crying one moment and then I walk a few meters into a different building and then I'm not crying anymore. In, in that sense, that's quite nice. Um, the Buddha has, that's a, there's a whole sutta about just that. Really? Yeah. It's sutta number 38, and many people think of it uh, kind of differently, but you made a very important point. I often use the example of now that you're in the UK, New Zealand is not there anymore. Yeah. Okay, except that in your mind. Yeah. But um, mostly what people believe is, is that it is me that moves around from here and there, and it is my consciousness that experiences the good and bad results of past actions. Yeah. Now, that basically, that statement that I just made is... Um, let us say it's ancient Brahmanism and a foundation of uh, Hinduism, if you can actually find a Hinduism, rather than a whole lot of Hinduisms. And um, uh, it's also something that one of the monks said to the Buddha. First, he was saying that just that to uh, other monks, and they corrected him and, and put him straight and told him uh, how to think about things and he wouldn't be changed and so they came in, uh, to the Buddha and mentioned this to him and so he summoned this monk, his name was uh, Sati, son of a fisherman and that the Buddha uh, pointed out most specifically that uh, consciousness is dependently arising and that it is arising in this moment dependent upon the things that are happening in this moment yeah. whether that's on the inside of the mind or outside of the mind but if you look at it from the position of uh the outside of the mind all you have to do is change buildings 
And that can change your whole attitude, your whole mind. You were in this building doing this, saying goodbye to a friend and boo-hoo and I miss you and all of that. And then you step into the next building and now you've got something to do. Now you got to go check in and you put your bags down and this, that, and the other thing. And here we go, up two, three, four. And guess what? You're not in the same consciousness that you were in the other building. It has changed. Yeah. This is what the Buddha's, one of the most important teachings that he has is this concept of everything is dependently arising. And that it happens on the outside and it happens on the inside. Another way of thinking about it is, is that New Zealand is actually not a dream. Uh It's real. But almost everyone who, uh, every human that is currently situated in New Zealand have a different view and version of New Zealand. They all see New Zealand differently. Therein lies the dream that everybody who is in New Zealand dreams about New Zealand slightly differently than other people who are in New Zealand dreaming about New Zealand. And now that you're back in the UK, you're dreaming about New Zealand, you know is a dream. You can see that now. You haven't confused it this time. <laughs> Congratulations. Even though if it feels yeah. disconcerting. Because with the, the, the change of building, In as much as these things kind of make sense, it that kind of made sense. It's like okay, you know, kind of like you say, if there's no alligator, like fine, like cool. I was saying goodbye to my friend, and like, um, you know, that was sad, and I, like I was, I was very sad in the moment, but then the moment passed, and I stopped being as sad. Um, but to think about like. And you would expect the same months. thing from him. And you would expect the same thing from him, right? For her, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that he's not going to remain sad for 18 months or a year or five years or the rest of his life or off into eternity or anything just because he kissed you goodbye in an airport. Yeah. No. You see, things keep changing. New things arise, and you would expect him to have changed when he went out of that building into his car or something like that, and now he's got to drive he's a different place and a different time, and he's got different behaviors with different consequences. Now, here's the point. He may have not figured that out. Oh, he's done that 20,000 times in his life. This time, you saw it. Yeah. That's what we're talking about, is the waking up to seeing these changes that are happening and knowing that most of the changes that are actually happening are happening inside the mind. That going back to that concept of a dream that people like in New Zealand, people can be in the same room and have different experiences of that room. An example would be in a museum. You've got 20 people in the museum, all of them in the same room looking at various art and every one of them is thinking differently. Yeah. One of them is thinking about, I got to go home. I wish this shift was over because she's the guard, right? And somebody else is, wow, I bet I can draw that too. 
<laughs> and another one is saying, I wonder which one of these paintings is the most valuable so I can sneak in here and steal it. You see, there's all these various kinds of things that people do in their mind that create the dream to where, in fact, that room was real. Yeah. The room itself was real. But what we do with our environment is we create a dream. And this is how it happens. This is part of the teaching of the Buddha. <clears throat> And in fact, this idea of dependent origination is what this is all founded upon in the sense that there's a sequence of events that happens in the mind, several steps, one after another, yeah. and that we, uh, we go through those steps without paying attention to those various steps. And because of that, we get confused about what causes what. We're confused about causes and effects and, and things like that. And we see something and it's real enough to us. And we think it's real to where, in fact, there's got to be some imagination in it somewhere. And this is how that happens. Yeah. First is this off, related to me returning to my room and seeing like, well, in some sense, it's like me returning to my room and, you know, the past 18 months being a dream, but in the other sense of seeing the things in my room and seeing, thinking, well, that's oh. not mine. That's not me. That's someone else's stuff. Or seeing the streets in my suburbs and thinking. Precisely so. But in fact, when you left that stuff 18 months ago to go to New Zealand, when you got to New Zealand, <clears throat> when you first got there, and you would have thoughts about the UK and thoughts of that room. You would have thoughts of that's my stuff. And yeah. you hadn't come to that point yet. But now you're making a big change. You go back to it and you recognize that uh, now that you've left New Zealand, everything that happened in New Zealand, because there's not a lot of evidence around proving that you were there, that yeah. much of it was there was a dream. And possibly not substantiated then in fact, two people can have an argument, separate from each other, stay mad at each other for five years, come back later to resolve it. And they talk about that fight that they had five years ago and both of them have a completely different view of what happened. That <laughs> yeah. in fact, in, in the musical Gigi that was done back in the 1960s. There's a song to where this old man and this old woman get together for reminiscing and they were talking about their first date together. And she's saying, I was dressed in, in yellow. And he says, you were dressed in blue. <laughs> like that, you know, it was like yeah. they everything is different. <clears throat> and the whole song between them is, is that they both remember their past years ago, that, that acquaintance, that meeting time that they had back then, and neither one of them can agree on anything that happened back then. They both have a completely different view of it, and guess what? Nobody in reality knows exactly what did happen. There was no cameras going on. That our memories are not very reliable. Yeah, I was reading a book about this on the plane, actually. Memory is not very reliable, and yet we're um, uh, taught that it should be. And that, in fact, there's a lot of skills that we build into education to try to get the memory up to some kind of scratch. But the fact is, is that all of us are quite forgetful. 
Yeah. You'd think, in fact, that if God made the human beings, you could have done a better job. <laughs> yeah. Because but when I was we recognize this, from evolution yeah. that we're only slightly better than monkeys, yeah, and then we can accept the reality of the situation. That's what we really are. We're still apes. We're still just slightly better than monkeys, and we are not the intelligent uh, pyramid of excellence that humanity has set itself up to be. That when we recognize that we make a lot of mistakes. And, and But we're taught because of that whole quality of being at a higher standard than we can reach. We often lie and say, well, I did meet the standard when, in fact, we didn't. We lie to ourselves, which means that our mistakes then are not educational for us because we're refusing to see it as a mistake. Yeah. And, in fact, by uh, changing it even from a mistake to just a learning experience... And then we can take a look, we can see what's going on, and maybe like you were talking about, we go through a little bit of um, uh, disconcerted kind of feeling. But then we, we really like the fact that, hey, we can see things a whole lot better now than we could before. Yeah. But I do not have to hide my faults because my faults are one of my best teachers. Yeah. And if I hide from my faults, I'm not going to learn anything. Yeah. And one That's, of the ways that we yeah. do that, you see, is by being really critical. So let's go back to that point that I was about to talk about, about how the mind works. Yeah. That, that points this out. First off, let's define what we mean by the word consciousness. Oh, gosh. <laughs> that I'll give you two different versions of the word consciousness or two different definitions. I think one of the reasons why there's a lot of confusion with people about consciousness is because they're not aware of both definitions and how the word is used back and forth. Okay. Uh, you can think of New York, and anybody can know the distinction between New York City and New York State. Mm -hmm. But when we think of consciousness... People get confused if there's two kinds of them there. Yeah. They think there's only one. So the first kind of consciousness is that which is associated directly with our senses. We can see, we can hear, we can touch, we can taste, yeah. we can feel. But in fact, when you wake up, the first thing that you do in the morning when you wake up is you become conscious of sensory awareness. That's yep. what it means to actually wake up, because when you're asleep, you're not in sensory awareness. Yeah, that's right. Or, and not only that, but the wake-up process is kind of gradual, that it yep. doesn't happen like a light switch. It's not, it doesn't happen at the speed of, the li speed of light. The human yep. mind is much slower. <laughs> Seems a little bit quick to, for me sometimes. <laughs> well, it's got a whole lot to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, that in fact, uh, as an engineer, we know that uh, the electrons inside of microprocessors run pretty slowly compared to light in a vacuum. Or even power going down a power grid. Mm. Okay, that that's slightly slower than the speed of light, but it's a whole lot faster than it operates in a, in a chip. Why is this so slow? It's because it's called a semiconductor. 
and things right. begin to slow down while a whole lot of complexity is happening. Yep. It's the complexity then. Okay, well, the human mind is actually quite complex. Things don't happen at the speed of light. But in fact, there's more than one part of the brain. One part of it is much more reactive. These are the instinctual reactions. In the uh, primitive times, there were the quick and the dead. If you're an alligator and a uh, great big bird, I mean, you're like a one-foot or two-foot alligator here, little thing, and there's a big crane right above you about to swoop down and pick you up. If you can see that, you can crawl off in time. You don't even need to see, because in this book I was reading, they were saying, like, we can judge whether something is a threat or not before we actually realize what it actually is. That's exactly right. In fact, that's why we call it a um, a false positive, because it's better to be quick yeah. than it is to be dead. Yeah. Even if we're quick wrong, it's better to be quick than yeah. slow and right. Because yeah. slow and right can be dead. Okay, so that's... <laughs> This is, but here's what happens in our society is, is that that false positive happens way too often that in fact there are no real dangers and yet we perceive danger because of this instinctual way that we were, um, <clears throat> let us say, born and raised and developed in a jungle. Now that humanity has got itself out of a jungle by having nice rooms and buildings and all of that kind of stuff, the human is still in a jungle in his own mind. Then, in fact, yeah. the cities become a concrete jungle. Some cities, <laughs> more so than others in my mind right now. Yes, yes, exactly. All right. New Zealand's so, a nice tropical paradise for me, whereas London's just like a scary jungle. <laughs> oh, the suburbs. I see, I, I don't know, I just look at, I just, yeah, I just, I look at it and I'm like, I'm having these thoughts that I didn't have before. I was just like, this is the same suburbs that I'm used to. And now I'm just like disgusted by it. <laughs> well, notice oh, that too, because you have a oh, choice yeah. about that. Yeah. But let's get back to the, yeah. the point about the consciousness then. Oh, yeah. That there's another kind of consciousness. And that kind of consciousness is much more human in orientation and it's much slower and that kind of consciousness would be also we could use the word seeing in the, in the sense of I see what you mean. Now, yeah. I see what you mean is a different kind of seeing than I see that tree. But yeah. even when I see the tree, by calling it a tree, I have still had to process it. Yeah. Okay. And so when I actually just see the tree or see it raw without yeah. having any pre preconceived ideas about trees, I don't even know what a tree is. Yeah. Okay. So basically what we're talking about is the difference between this uh, consciousness that is associated with the senses and the consciousness that happens inside the mind is is that that which is happening inside the mind is processed. And it uses the current moment's input and an old database, in this case, of trees. Yeah. And so we we know what kind of tree it is, and we know that it's a tree because we've seen trees before. And I guess your current mental state, right? 
Well, also, that's an important point that you just made, and that is, is that our memories often have baggage, not just visual imagery, but much of our memories have to do with feelings. So that when we um, see the picture of a person, then we remember that person, and we have the same feelings about that photo that we did about that person. So if we hate that person, when we see the photo, we hate the photo. Yeah. All right. Or if we love them or if they're, uh, let us say, a gangster that you're afraid of and all of that kind of stuff that you we go, we do that. And and that process is in 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 English is called perception. Yeah. And so we see things in reality and then we perceive it into an internal representation that often is mixed with feelings. So the thing that internally represents us will often have feelings mixed with it to where the actual reality didn't. Yep. That's where the dreamlike state comes from then. The dream is being created in the moment based upon the reality. So two different people can look at the same photo and the same image and get two different reactions out of it. And the reason for that is because of their past. Yeah. So I can see this or. This is starting to make more and more sense. You know, I change buildings, I do something, I, I go to sleep, I wake up and the thing I just did before seems, you know, very much dreamlike. But are you saying that it's happening right now? Well, that's where the dream is created yeah. but if the dream is stored then oh, yeah. it's a past dream yeah that some of the dreams we remember and some of them don't in fact we don't remember most of it no yeah. humans are generally very forgetful but that's one of the qualities of um uh the buddhas uh is is that they have really really good sharp memory especially about the past. Now, that's often confused in the sense that the Buddha remembers past lives. Mm. Well, yeah, if he's a 70 year old man, he's had a lot of lives that he can remember yeah. in those past 70 years, especially a lot of stuff that happened. But most people can't remember hardly anything that happened before they were age of six. Yeah, yeah. I've got students that don't remember anything before they were 14 or 15. Yeah. Some people kind of forget everything that happened all together. I mean, they don't even remember high school. They just forgot it. Yeah. Partly because it's too traumatic for them to actually bring that stuff up in memory and, and remember it. Where other people do, they think it's okay to remember high school because they can remember some of the fun things. And then all of a sudden they remember one of the tragedies that happened in high school and now they feel bad for no reason at all because the reality of this particular moment is everything's okay. But yeah. the mind is thinking about a tragedy that happened 10 years ago and so now we're feeling bad. Yep. This is the progression of Paticca Samapada. Alright? That in fact we've got this conscious consciousness that it has been relying upon a set of memories and those memories have ignorance built into them. When we were really little kids, there was a lot of ignorance because kids don't know anything. And so as children, we often make some lifelong decisions that are completely inappropriate. We made them out of ignorance. Yeah. 
um, that that happens. That in, that in fact, in some cases, little girls are badly abused by a couple of uncles, and they wind up being a lesbian, mm-hmm. and they don't even remember that they were abused when they were two or three years old by these old men. They just started to hate men. And so their only alternative was to have romantic relationships with women because all men were out of the question and they don't even know why. So this is uh, part of what happens in childhood is, is that we just kind of forget everything because there's too many childhood traumas that are looking around the corner. And so a lot of us were getting, but also when we're adults, we tend to remember things that are recently, but then just around the corner, the tragedies of adulthood will present themselves. That's why people, when they're just sitting and thinking, they get bored is because of the only thoughts that they have to think of are, uh, let us say, a bit painful. Mm. Um, so, uh, while we're learning to practice Anapanasati, what we begin to say is, is that uh, whatever kind of thoughts that we're going to have, we're going to have them under the classification that they're going to be wholesome thoughts as opposed to unwholesome thoughts. Yeah. And that mostly you can find unwholesome thoughts by reminiscing in the past. So the past is a bit dangerous, and for a student in... Uh, let us say, uh, in the process of becoming an adept, mm-hmm. it's better to just forget about the past altogether. Yeah. But once they become very adept at handling things, they can go back and reminisce in the, into the past and become quite excellent at it in the sense that things that they would have never thought that they could have possibly remembered, they can. Okay. Uh, and so the memories are there. They're always stored, but they're stored with baggage. And the baggage is almost always emotional baggage. Yeah. And so what we need to do is to find out how to come out of that perpetual over and over and over again, think, feel, think, feel, talking ourselves into feeling bad over and over again. And now we're going to start talking ourselves into feeling good. Yeah. So that those internal representations that we're having now become wholesome. Yeah. But ordinary things that happen, whatever it is, it's not the first kind of consciousness or our, um, let's say, interactions or our reception of reality. It's what we make of it, the internal consciousness that is that contacts us, that hits us that has an impression upon us, that pushes us around, that drives us. Mm-hmm. Okay, in the Pali, this is called pasa. And that this internal representation that we were talking about, this internal mapping in the moment, is called salayatana. But that can also be thought of as concepts, critical thinking, and all of that kind of stuff that we do inside the mind that is not associated with the reality of this present moment. Yeah. The reality of the moment is in our senses, not in our internal senses. So we so we start paying more attention to the consciousness of reality 
and stop giving so much service to the consciousness of the dream world, of our internal reality that has both past and uh, conceptual ideas mixed into it. So that yeah. you actually begin to see things the way that they really are. We, be, we start to be here now. That's what the whole teaching of the Buddha is all about, is to be here now. And the way that we do this is by going backwards from uh, the top level of Paticca Samapada, backwards down to consciousness. Yeah. But it's almost always taught in forward order. This causes that, causes this, causes that, causes this here, causes that thing. This happens and then bango, that's there. Yeah. And how we see, how we begin to figure that out is by backing up because we, when we're observing, we get a little bit quicker. Yeah. And as we get a little bit quicker, we can see things that are uh, that that used to be the cause. And we see the cause. We see what happens, and then we recognize: no, that's not just a cause. It's also an effect. That there was a cause before that. Let's start looking for what happened that caused that cause, and then we recognize yeah. that too is an effect, and it had a cause. Yeah. So we begin to back up through it and and see what's going on. And this is the speed that we begin to develop in sati. Sati has three qualities to it. It has the quality of um, how often on a regular basis does sati come up? Yeah. A second quality to it is uh, how strong is it? In other words, does it have effort built into it? And then the third kind of quality is, is that when it is here, when you thought of it or when you remembered and that it's strong, how strong it is also determines how quick you could be in picking up stuff. So that you begin to get quicker and quicker at seeing what's going on in the mind. This is why we teach this, this stuff. And by the way, all of this is just second noble truth, the cause of suffering. Wait just a second. Um, when you say effort, that's not like a kind of effort, exactly is it? Exactly right. This is a, um, the kind of effort. Uh, the kind of effort that a gunslinger would have. Mm. It's got to be fast. <laughs> okay. Okay, and you're saying this is the most so, people think of effort as slow and hard and tough. So we okay. have to take the effort out of effort so that it can be fleeting. And this is the second noble truth because we're working backwards from the cause of suffering. Yes, exactly. We're looking at what is the actual cause of suffering. The second noble truth says that it's greed, ill will and delusion. Well, we've yeah. already began to talk about delusion because we started off as a child pretty ignorant, pretty deluded. Yeah. So um, what happens at that point of contact, that pasa, when something pushes us, that's when feelings arise. And normally the feelings that are arise are I like it, I don't like it, or I don't know whether I like it or not. I'm not sure whether I like it or not. 
Now, if we're not sure of whether we like it or not, we may make the ignorant um, mistake that you could call an instinctual mistake is, is that if we don't know what it is, let's put it in the dangerous category just to be sure, just to be safe. That's what we do, is, is that things that we're confused about, we begin to get doubtful about. And doubt is an actual hindrance. Yeah. Okay. But if we see something and we like it, and we like it and we want it because we like it, then yeah. wanting something that we don't have is greed, and that's also a form of suffering, yeah. a form of dukkha. And also, if we like, if we uh, are contacted by something, and we don't like it, we're trying to get rid of it. Yes, yeah. ill will. Yeah. <laughs> now, this greed, ill will, and delusion that is of the second noble truth, in the practice of, or in the deeper teaching of the teacher Samapada, what happens is, is these feelings arise, but they arise ignorantly. That ignorance yeah. is still there. If we have a feeling that is wise because we're paying close attention, then we can like something and not want it. Yeah. Or I can not like something and not have to do anything about it. I'm okay. Just because I don't like it doesn't mean anything. Yeah. Just because people are lying to me doesn't mean that I have to not like it. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I don't like it, but I don't have to do anything about it because I can't stop people from lying. Yeah. Hard enough to stop oneself from lying. You have to be on top of it that way. So, um, mostly though, when people w see something that they like, they want it. Yeah. And if they want it a lot, then um, in the Pali, the Vedana is the feeling. And then it goes from Vedana to Tanha, and Tanha means wanting. Oh, yeah. Now, we want a little bit, or we yeah. can want a lot. And when yeah. we really want it a lot, that's when it becomes uh, upadana or craving. Yeah. Okay. Craving and clinging. Yeah. All right. Craving and clinging is a bit different than wanting. But you can see that it's a continuum. Yeah. It's almost like how hard are you going to hold on to that thing? Yeah. So... Uh, these things are a continuum, but when we get to the state of we really, really want something, then we are generally reborn in a woeful state right then and there of the hungry ghost. You probably heard of the preachers, the hungry ghost, there's four woeful states. These four woeful states come from the four modes of clinging, and the four modes of clinging come from the three Vedana, liking, not liking, and confusion. So, in fact, confusion can lead to fear. Mm -hmm. uh, and we invent something to be afraid of. Because basically, really, what's going on is we just don't know something. But in our society, kids are supposed to know something. Sometimes kids panic when, a, when an adult asks them a question they don't know the answer to it. They panic. Yeah. Rather than, I don't know, man. It's not my problem. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just a kid. <laughs> I'm just a kid already. You don't have to punish me because I don't know the answers to your questions. So we get uptight like that, and we're supposed to know. 
this is also a kind of thing that we could call stage fright, butterflies in the stomach, freezing, this kind of thing. An example is a little kid, he really knows his line, he's a tree, and all he has to do is walk onto the stage dressed as a tree and say, I'm a tree. And that's his whole thing. And he walks out on stage and he forgets his lines. Why is that? He forgets his line because he sees mommy and daddy and Uncle Billy and all the family and everybody else and all the other kids up on the stage and he gets afraid. So we take that kind of fear with us into adulthood. And we prevent ourselves from doing things. And one way of saying it is all dressed up and no place to go. Yeah. So this, um, so you have greed, ill will, and delusion, and then you're saying four kinds of clinging, and then they lead to, because I assume, you know, greed leads to craving, which is, and ill will leads to aversion, um, and delusion, you know, if you want to be on the safe side, it kind of leads to aversion as well. But I guess there's one more. Well, yes, there is, which I've already mentioned, and that is there is wise feeling. Mm. Wise feeling knows that you like it, and that's okay. No big deal. I see that but I those like one, it. That's not a clinging one. Uh, you said there was something about yeah, four things of clinging? Well, there's four modes of clinging, yeah. but those four modes of clinging come out of the three kinds of uh, ignorant feelings. But we have extra choices in there that don't exactly fit one-on-one -on -one inside the mind. But we do know from, uh, from fairly easy-to-do research that the four modes of clinging that the Buddha specified and talked about are exactly identical and fit directly in with the four instincts. Mm. So that when we like something or don't like it or are confused we be, and we are ignorant, that means that we start acting instinctually and one of the four instincts will be presenting itself as a yeah. form of clinging. One form of clinging is the self-preservation instinct, which means clinging to the self, yeah. clinging to my own existence. I can't loan you the money because that's mine and I need it. Yeah. Okay, so that's an example there of uh, one kind of the mode of clinging. Another mode of clinging is clinging to the material possessions, mm. ownership. That in fact, in, uh, in the Dhamma, we even talk about spiritual materialism because we cling to attainments and things like this. Yeah. But you've got a whole house full of stuff that you're not attaching or to or clinging to right now. That's it right there is that materialism that's based on the procreation instinct. Yeah. I bet of at least 10% of all of the items that are in that room, about 10% or more of them, maybe a higher percentage, were obtained originally with the thought that owning this thing will help me get a girl. Surprisingly not. <laughs> not. Not presently, but when you bought it. We're talking about way back when. Uh, it's hard to speak for past Druv at this point. <laughs> well, that's what happens normally. This is within yeah. that, that concept. In fact, a really, really good example, one of them that I like, this is a far side cartoon. It's where this really, really heavy um, uh, Neanderthal kind of dude 
has a big club in one hand in his right hand and in his left hand he has a whole handful of hair as he's dragging the female into the cave mm. okay now that's the cartoon yeah. guess what is that a sexual cartoon or is that a power cartoon is that an ownership and control and domination is that a materialism or is it a sexuality both i guess they're both exactly that's why they're labeled together and put in one group ownership of a woman and ownership of a club are the same thing procreation having babies and having bows and arrows are the same thing it's used so, for protection of the self that's the important point is is that we collect things around us for protection so the uh the procreation instinct or the materialism instinct is in the service of the self-preservation instinct. instinct okay okay the next instinct uh is the instinct that is called um nesting or herding instinct the instinct to go along to get along the instinct of safety in numbers this comes from as far back in evolution as schooling fish birds of a feather when the when the gun goes off and they're all in the tree they'll all just fly off like this but then all go off in the same direction they'll stay together all right uh and that you could go so far as to say that human society is humanity's nesting instinct made visible yeah our society going along getting along cooperation you could also see that meta karuna mudita upeka that whole section of how to deal with others is basically learning how to deal um, with that nesting instinct in a nurturing way. In a wise way, yeah. In a wise way, exactly. Yep. So the fourth instinct is um, the instinct of, oh, and by the way, the Buddha refers to that nesting instinct is attachments to rites, rules, and rituals. Sila Bhatta Paramasa. Mm. And that is also the second fetter. The first fetter, by the way, is personality view, getting over who am I. And the second fetter is getting over all of the ways that things should be. Part of that determines who I am. So all of the rites, rules, rituals, social structures, way things to be done, all of the laws of every country, all the regulations, all the ways that things are supposed to be done in this particular house or that particular house yeah. mm-hmm. in this particular university and in this particular university we do things this way right that's what you see so you got to come back <laughs> that's exactly right if you do not follow the rules you will get ostracized yep <laughs> now back in back in the jungle days when we were apes, that was important. If that baby ape starts screaming while the uh, the the rest of the um, nest high in the tree made out of leaves and, and the baboons are all there and that baby baboon starts screaming while the panthers are out, 
one of the old uh, baboons is going to grab that infant and throw it out of the nest and let the panthers have it. That's just the way things are, that you have to get along in the nest. And in fact, uh, fast forward into humanity and you have the teenage daughter all dolled up on Wednesday night going out. And daddy says, you can't go out tonight. This is a school night. And she says, I'll do what I want to do. And he'll say, this is my house. If you want to stay here, you have to do what I tell you to do. Bango, that's it. That's the nesting instinct writ large right there. But we see that happening 100,000 times a day all over the place. That nesting instinct builds society. This, in, in fact, there's one more point to it that helps redefine it uh, more specifically, and that is the fourth um, instinct is, or the fourth mode of clinging is uh, attachments to territory. Now, most animals, like dogs, they're very attached to the physical territory. Humans have kind of taken our territorial instinct into the head so that our territory is conceptualizations and views. So that my territory is Republican and your territory is Democrat. Let's fight. Yep, yep. Okay. This is where the territories come in and the territorial instinct then uh, is an extension of the nesting instinct and defines the nest and what is not the nest. That the nest boundaries end at the territorial boundaries and things that are outside the territory are not in my nest. They are not me. They are foreign. They're unknown and they're dangerous. This is what gives rise then to humanity's um, tribalism, um, uh, racism, uh, uh, clinging to identities of uh, political parties, um, different religions. I mean, wouldn't it be nice if the religious were rigid enough to see that every religion, especially the religion of the guy that I'm talking to right now, that his religion is just as good as mine because they're both religions. But instead, we see him as, oh, he's not my religion, he's that religion. And I don't know what that is, but it's not mine, so it must be terrible. Besides, my religion says that if you're in my religion, you go to heaven, and when you're not in my religion, you go to hell. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. and so he's in that religion. Never mind that he's got a heaven and a hell too. He's going to yeah. go to my hell. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so this is the territorial instinct, and in you can see how it gets really, really strong inside the mind when we practice it over and over again. But this instinctual behavior needs to be cut off before it gets there. But to finish it off, in the sense of the Buddha these four modes of clinging, then when we're clinging that way, we fall into that trap. And so if we're wanting something that we don't have, materialism, then we want it. And we fall into the woeful state of the hungry ghost. The, uh, the, uh, the emphasis is not on ghost, but we become a ghost because we're empty, because we don't have what we need. Uh, yeah. We become a shell of ourselves because our real self is that thing that we don't have. And I would be whole if I only had that new motorcycle or that 
Mercedes yeah. or that hot chick down the street or whatever it is that I don't have making me empty inside because I don't have what I want. Thinking that if I get what I want, I'll be happy. Unfortunately, that happiness is very, very fleeting. Mm. Now that I've got that hot chick, I got to keep her. Yeah. Now I have to be jealous of everybody else who wants her. Yeah. Okay, so you can see having a hot chick is dangerous. Yeah. Because of jealousy, among other things. Yeah. So what we want is dangerous, whether we get it or not. Yeah. Because if we don't get it. <laughs> yeah. Because once you want it, you're like, oh, that was nice. Maybe you can, maybe I can get it again. I wonder how I can get it again. Right. It just doesn't end. And if I lose it, I'll feel bad. Oh, I once oh, had yeah. it. Oh, poor me. I lost it. Yeah. Grief comes from those things that are dear. So when we lose something that's dear to us, we'll, yeah. we'll grieve. Well, it was dear to us because we worked very hard because we wanted it in the first place. We want it. We got it. We enjoyed it a little bit. We got used to having it around and then we lose it. And now we feel really bad. So this is how those things work. These are the four woeful states. When we get really, really angry, that anger is based upon fear. But when we're angry and agitated, that's hell. That's a hell state. Yeah. Because we got to get out of it. We don't like what's going on and we're desperate to get out. That's yeah. what the definition of hell is. Mm. Where the hungry ghost, that's being desperate for wanting to be filled with something of our desire. But the one that's the most common is the woeful state of the dumb animal. Why? Because that's the one that's closely, most uh, tightly attached to the nesting instinct. Where we, as children, we learn to do what we're told to do without any joy. Mm, yeah. In other words, learn your ABCs, do your one, two, threes, pick up your room, put down your cell phone and do your homework and all of that. And we don't care whether you're joyful about it or not. You just do what you're told to do. Yeah. Along with that comes the quality of delayed gratification mm. so that, oh, you're not going to get any reward at all for learning your ABCs. Now, after you learn your ABCs, you got to learn to read. Once you learn to read, then you got to learn to read some really technical stuff. And once you learn to read that really technical stuff, maybe then someday you'll be worthwhile. But yeah. until then, you ain't worth nothing, which means that all the effort that we put in is basically unrewarded. This is an important point that uh, because we spent so much time being that woeful uh, animal doing what we're told to do, promised a reward that we then don't get, which is yeah. basically what we would call a bait and switch. Yeah. We're baited into doing something. We do it. And then the reward is switched on us and we don't get the real reward out of it. Yeah. The fourth one. Uh, of these in instincts is the one that really has to do with fear. This is a really deep one. Now, in these four woeful states of an animal, hell, um, and a hungry ghost, many people put the Asuras in heaven. Yeah. Because the Asuras are very much like the Titans in Greek yeah. mythology. Okay. Oh, yeah. Yeah. 
All right. So the Asuras are the Titans, are the warriors yeah. that are all dressed up for battle. But if they go to battle, the only place that they can battle are the higher gods, and the higher gods are going to beat the piss out of them. And they yeah. know that. Therefore, the Asuras remain warriors all dressed for battle, but they don't go into battle. Uh. Because they're afraid. All dressed up and no place to go. Hmm. We're hesitant. We're doubtful. So you can see where these four woeful states come directly from the instincts. And when we are reborn out of being really human into one of these woeful uh, animal realm instincts. I actually that's where the the Buddha uses the word rebirth to be reborn in hell. Not that you have to die and break up your body and go to hell, but you can create hell in your own mind. So the self-preservation instinct, I guess that is the well, the hungry ghost. I guess that's materialism, right? Well, it. The question would be, yeah. how do we express yeah. our, uh, uh, it's not necessarily the self. In fact, the guys who figured this stuff out didn't go far enough. They should have named it this, the uh, organism preservation instinct, right. because it's actually trying to preserve the existence of the organism, not a self. That in fact the self only exists when the self-preservation mechanism is in gear, yeah. and when the self-preservation mechanism is not in gear, then we're not acting selfish. Yeah, this is one of the major, major problems with uh, a lot of uh, teachings about Buddhism. Mm -hmm. When they get into the realm of the words like eternalism, semi-eternalism, mm -hmm. annihilationism. Nihilism. The Buddha yeah. wasn't any of those things. He was actually accused of um, being an annihilationist. Yeah. Now, what is an annihilationist that is stated in the sutras is upon the breakup of the body, the existing being is annihilated. Yeah. All right. Eternalism teaches that upon the breakup of the body, the self continues on, the soul. Yeah. It doesn't die. It may eventually die, but that's way long into the future. That's the distinction between eternalism means ain't no way it's going to ever die. And semi-eternalism says, yeah, eventually it might die. Yeah. A lot of Buddhists are semi-eternalist. Mm -hmm. Okay. The Buddha was accused of being an annihilationist. The nihilist is the one who says, there ain't nothing. Yeah. I can go get away with anything. I can yeah. go get what I want and get away with it. Yeah. This is actually wrong view. Yeah. And normally eternalism is used as ordinary right view, which means, no, you can't get away with it. Eventually, the cops are going to catch you. Yeah. We're going to make sure you can't get away with it, Mr. Nihilist. Eternally, you will eventually get caught. Yeah. That's where those things are. The Buddha was not any of those things. What he yeah. was was more of a temporarist mm -hmm. because things happen on a temporary basis. He was all into a Nietzsche. 
Yeah. You've heard yeah. the expression Anicca Dukkha Anatta. Yeah. Anicca Dukkha Anatta. Basically, what we're talking about here is we're talking about the letter Y or a fork in the road. Yeah. In the sense that when Anicca does happen, because things happen, yeah. when something happens, that's the Anicca, we have a choice. Are we going to go down the road of, it's not my problem. Yeah, it happened, but it wasn't me that happened. Yeah. Anatta. Or are we going to take the road of when it happens, oh, it's important, oh, poor me, oh, I need it, and now we're in dukkha. So yeah. that's how we want to look at it. It's, it's, it's uh, anicca and then dukkha or anatta. You have a choice, dukkha or anatta. If you take the selfish route, that selfish route is going to wind you up as either anger, you wanting something, you got to do some job you don't want to do, but you do it anyway, or you get freaked out. Those yeah. are the four possibilities. The, all four of them is uncomfortable, unsatisfying, unsatisfactory. Dukkha. Wait, so say that again. I guess those were the four modes of clinging, which was... Organism wind up being preservation, which are the uh, wind up very quickly sometimes into yeah. the four woeful states. Yeah. And the four woeful states themselves is the definition of dukkha. Yeah. So that's Paticca Samuppada. It's got 12 steps, starting with ignorance and then Sankara. And by the way, ignorance is a jiva. Yeah. Sankara means all of the past, and we have all of that going, and then in this present moment, we see something. That's yeah. consciousness. When we see something, we try to make sense out of it. That's the Nama Rupa. We're trying to make sense. We take it as a Rupa that's real and try yeah. to name it. Yeah. We need the Sankara in order to do that. That's why yeah. the Sankara is part of the package. That brings us then from Nama Rupa into the Salyatana. The Salyatana is the ex is the internal consciousness. Yeah. The internal, uh, the external consciousness is called Vinaya. Mm -hmm. Then it's called contact, pasa. It's that internal right. representation yeah. that hits us. That's where feelings arise, Vedana. Vedana yeah. leads into tanha, wanting. Tanha goes to cleaning, to, um, yeah. upadana. And yeah. upadana then is rebirth into the woeful state which is jati and then dukkha. So that's the whole sequence of events. The question is, how, how quick can you do that? A lot of people, in fact, can see it once they've gotten into the woeful state. Yeah. An example of it is, is that a husband and wife are arguing, and all of a sudden the, the, the husband recognizes that he's gone too far. While his wife is screaming at him, he turns on his heel, slams the door on the way out. Enough of this, okay? Yeah. He recognizes this isn't working. We got to get out of this, right? Yeah. That's a pretty, pretty late place to be. We got to find a way of getting out of the anger a little bit quicker than that. Wait, okay. just so we, before we move on, because this is the thing that I'm really interested in, I just want to recap. Um, Organism, the, the formats clinging, organism, organism protection instinct, like materialism, procreation, attachments to, what was it, um, rights, rules, and rituals, mm -hmm. and territorialism. Territory, 
nesting uh, instinct, yeah. uh, materialism, and selfishness. Those are the four instincts, giving rise to the four modes of clinging of the self, materialism, or um, uh, we, in the suttas they were referred to as sensual desires, but we're talking about material possessions that we can grab hold of, or concepts that we can grab hold of as material possessions. And then the third one is the nesting instinct, which the Buddha talks about as sila vata paramasa, which is uh, attachments to the way things ought to be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the last one is attachments to concepts, yeah. which is this is also uh, this ad- helps identify who I am. I'm a Baptist. Yeah. I'm an engineer. And then, and then for each of those, you have was it the hungry ghost, the animal, um, and the last two, the Asura and Hell. Asura. Right. And then the scaredy cats. Yeah. Okay. So you can be um, in hell, which is the asshole. Yeah. Okay. Um, uh, the hungry ghost then would be the thief. Yeah. Um, the um, the donkey or the draft animal, and then the freighty cat. So that's way that's a way that you can think of it. Yeah, because if you're, is it, do they, is it just like, um, do they map one-on-one or is it um, slightly different? Sometimes we can see nuances that in fact those things really, really closely bleed together in, especially in the sense that all of the instincts are in service of the self-preservation instinct. Yeah. So how far do they come in order, like one, two, three, four? Or do they bunch around like this? Sometimes they, you know, so it's kind of hard. In fact, I would think of it that uh, that the uh, the the three instincts circle around yep. the primary self-preservation uh, yep. instinct. Then, okay. in fact, you could see that the self-preservation instinct itself would be the Asura. Yeah. And that the dumb animal would be then the... Um, the nesting instinct. Yeah. Okay, so that these things fit together really well. And <laughs> we're talking about um, uh, both ancient and modern views of, of things, because the Buddha didn't think of it in terms of instinct, but boy, did he have them nailed. Yeah. And so, I guess this is a really important question, which is, How do I? I want that gunslinger instinct, that the gunslinger effort. I'll, I just because when I when I, I've had a few moments like that where I see something and I see it in the moment and I'm like, oh, you know, you know. I think you mentioned in one of your videos, it's like, it, it starts off as a small child and then in like ten seconds it goes into a gorilla, <laughs> <laughs> right? And I'm just very glad I saw it in the moment because, like, whoa, because th- that would have been a real problem had I not caught that earlier. Um, sorry, right. had I caught that later. Um, but, you know, sometimes I only see it later. I'm just like looking at the suburbs and thinking, oh, these suburbs suck. It's like, wait, when did I start thinking that? It's like, well, clearly that was very well later down the line in some sense. Well, um, 
here's kind of the way that we're going to do that. One is yeah. we're going to start building up the the intention, as it were, yeah. that we're going to see what's going on. Yeah. We're going to develop the skill of sati so that we can wake up to see how things are are progressing in this very moment. Now, the question is, in what part of the sequence of events from the start, uh, going back to the uh, to the argument the husband and wife are having, up to the moment that he slammed the door? Yeah. How did that fight get started? Most likely it got started because one or the other of them had the feeling, I don't like this. Yeah. And so then one wanted something and the other one wanted something else. And so both now are in the state of wanting and feeling deprived and they're not nurturing each other at all. Yeah. But both of them are asleep to this because if you had uh, tapped both of them on the shoulder at that point in time and asked them, hey, would you rather be angry at each other or would you rather be nourishing with each other? They would both at that point choose nurturing a little bit later. They really want to be in it. Yeah, or okay. I mean, nourishing themselves as well, not just each other. Right, exactly. So there is a sequence of events that going on here, and one of the ways of looking at it is the idea that when two people are ignorant and don't know what they're doing and not mindful and not watching anything, then there's no end to how many oh, yeah. things they can argue about. I mean, they're just arguing, 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 arguing. Yeah. When someone is really, really paying attention to what's yeah. going on, generally what happens is, is that in the beginning, they'll get our, they'll have, let us say, seven, arg uh, seven arguments or seven noisy words or seven stupid acts, yeah. and then he wakes up. Yeah. Just like the guy did when he slammed the door. He's still angry, but he woke up. Yeah. Okay. So this is the question. If we can wake up in seven, can we wake up next time in six? Can we wake up down to just one angry word like, ha? And then we stop and say, wait a minute, I don't have to go there. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And then the next step is going to be the feeling is recognized, but before anything is said. Yeah. I think I'm up. at that point. Hmm? Where I'll just be going about my day, and I'm be, then I'll just be like, oh. And, I mean, you know, just like, well, okay. So, you know, I guess, you know, take a moment to breathe and just, or just look at the, like, wait, why are my eyes feeling like this? Why is my chest feeling like this? Um, yeah, I'd say probably like okay. half the time I'm like at this, that point. All right, if you can do it in just one time, okay. then that is what is normally referred to as the once returner. Yeah. Or the uh, Sotagami. Now, yeah. the, there's technical definitions, but basically that's what we're talking about. If you could catch yourself in just one thing, yeah. one moment of anger, one moment of fear, one moment of disgust, one moment of this, that, or the other unwholesome thought, and then you wake up to one thought. That's excellent. Okay. Normally, so I guess waking up doesn't mean necessarily like you're just instantly better though right because that's that's not my experience it's just like well well that, this is it like you know i'm like i'm like this is uh, that comes up and i was like okay this isn't getting any worse but um i guess 
that's if a more you intense. If you don't wake up, you, know, you don't have fine. any opportunity to fix it. Yeah. But if you do wake up and you do see what's going on and recognize that this is unwholesome. Yeah. Then we're already on the Eightfold Noble Path. That's it. In fact, the sati is to wake up and then look at what we're doing and recognizing that that's unwholesome. And then we have to take the effort to change it. And that's oftentimes the difficult part. Once we've gotten angry yeah. and we wake yeah. up to that anger, it's hard to grab a hold of that anger and rein it back in. Yeah. The easier thing to do is to rein in anger when it's very, very tiny before it grows, while it's still a seed, not a giant uh, uh, prickly vine or something. Yeah. All right, so that's it. How quick can we catch this stuff in the mind? And one of the ways of looking at it is, can you catch anger at that point before you even say anything out loud? Yeah. Because then you haven't given your position away. Yeah. That that means that you can change it. And that's where wisdom comes in, because with wisdom, even though you don't like it and you know you don't like it. Yeah. One hundred percent guaranteed. I don't like it. So Mm. (laughs) I don't have to get angry just because I don't like it. That's where we are then at the Petitra Samapada in the sense of now the feelings are wise feelings and they don't go into grasping and clinging and then into the woeful state. I guess with um with something like let's say let's take anger as an example like a particular moment of anger that kind of makes sense to me right mm-hmm. um but what if you're just like I don't know what if you're just like you know for like let's say a day or even an hour you're just like kind of grumpy like there's nothing that's happening but you know if something were to happen you're you, you, like like it, it it, you kind of have the glasses on that you're looking for something to get angry about or um you know nothing's bothering you right now but you just know that you're looking for that almost right you could say so, that it's basically an underlying attitude underlying exactly yeah okay that's great because that's exactly where we're going with this yeah because the, the anger is almost easier to spot like okay like oh like fine i can um, you know, if I'm feeling upset, it's like, okay, kind of, I can feel it in my face and my chest, right. But there's the underlying attitudes, like, definitely still there. And like, well, <laughs> what do I do about that? Well, if anything. that's, that's where we're coming from yeah. with the practice. Yeah. That, that if you have the practice so that you can, um, first off, we want to talk about this in seclusion. Yeah. In the sense that it's really, really hard to learn to drive a car out on the freeway where everybody's going 60 miles an hour. Yeah. You want to find an empty parking lot to learn to drive. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We need to do that same thing. Yeah. With, with this practice is to get into seclusion, to get away from it all so that we can at least do it easily rather than with all the pressures of all the traffic in the neighborhood. So we get into seclusion, and then we recognize that the mind is still not in seclusion because it's got all the traffic in that we remember still in the head. Yeah. Okay. And so 
basically what we're going to do then is spend our mind moments mm-hmm. inspecting and investigating to throw all of the old traffic out of the mind and start having new, wholesome, happy thoughts right now. And there's an important part about that, and that is is that we have to practice this over and over and over and over again because we have been talking ourselves our whole lives into feeling bad. Now it's time to talk ourselves into feeling good. And just one little good thought among a whole sea of bad thoughts is not going to be that beneficial. We need to see the mind in on the unwholesome state and then take the effort that it takes to change that into wholesome thoughts. Now, there are uh, always the students ask, well, what's the difference between a wholesome thought and an unwholesome thought? The answer to that is, is that's a skill to be developed. That's called one's right noble view is to figure out for yourself what is wholesome and what is not wholesome. And that we can put it into three groups, that which we absolutely for sure know is unwholesome. Beyond a shadow of a doubt, some things are unwholesome. Yeah. Think Thoughts of bombing Fox News. Thoughts of taking the gun away from the cop. Those are definitely unwholesome thoughts. Very dangerous, right? Then there are thoughts that we know of that are absolutely wholesome. Yeah. And these are the ones that we want to start practicing. Thoughts like everything's all right, everything is fine, no place to go, nothing to do, everything is all right. And then there is this vast middle area of thought that we would call junk thought. What's going on with the junk thoughts are is that there's generally some dukkha in there, and the more sophisticated you get, the easier you can see what dukkha there is in that kind of thought. An example would be if you're having a thought about uh, an argument that you had with Aunt Susie, that's actually an unwholesome thought to try to finish it because you're thinking about the past, about what the argument was. You're thinking about the future. What are you going to say to her next? And right now in this moment, you're not enjoying yourself. You're thinking that you will enjoy yourself when you defeat her in that argument. Yeah, arguments are, um, I mean, not with my friends, but I do some sort of, yeah, yeah, arguments are, (laughs) they're a recurring thought in my head. Right, well, we get into all kinds of arguments. We can argue with old priests and old preachers in our heads. We can argue with old professors. We can argue with politicians. We can argue with all kinds of things if we start thinking about it. We can find something (laughs) wrong with everything. All right, so. This is where we're looking for, um, and we can call those kind of thoughts uh, critical thoughts. Yeah. Critical and conceptualized thoughts or thoughts about, remember we were before talking about the dream? Yeah. Okay. Dreams are unwholesome. Yeah. Let's start paying attention to what's really happening in our senses right now to wake up and experience this breath as we're taking a long, deep breath and be in this present moment in the senses is a very wholesome thing to do, as opposed to thinking about something that needs to be done that we're not doing right now. An example of that is the guy's got to go to the bank, 
He knows he's got to go to the bank. He keeps thinking about going to the bank. And in fact, he goes to the bank eventually, but he's gone to the bank a hundred times in his mind without ever going to the bank at all. He finally goes to the bank, but how many times has he been to the bank in his mind? That's the way that we're beginning to understand it. That if you're going to do something, go do it. If you're not going to do it, then don't think about it. it. Leave it alone. Spend your time being happy instead. Get yourself into this position. So this is where we're going with this. If you can do this over and over and over again to change it from an unwholesome thought into a wholesome thought, that's a skill that we're developing. And with that skill comes confidence of being successful. Yeah. So having thoughts of safety, security, comfort, and satisfaction, which is sukha, over and over and over again, we're successful at becoming satisfied. We're successful at becoming comfortable. That develops the attitude of, I could do this. And this is the practice and seclusion that we can then take out into. And then once we get the attitude of, hey, I've got this wire. I can yeah. take care of myself. I don't have to harm myself anymore. Yeah. Then we can take those four tools right view, right sati, right effort, and right attitude, and go for a pony ride. Mm-hmm. Then we can deal with the world well. Yeah. Because we have the right attitude about things. And what is the right attitude? I can do this. I can handle yeah. this. I can ride That's this pony. Time. Yeah. If it needs to be done, go do it. And if not, don't think about it. <laughs> right. Yeah. I see that all the time with my, uh, I've, I've got a, a toy here. Yeah. Is uh, Many people would call it a network. Mm. But for me, it's a toy. And in that network, it has uh, actually, all together, there have been eight servers. Mm-hmm. Okay, so it's a fairly sophisticated network because we're working, we're working with uh, mostly hard drives from four terabytes and eight terabytes, and altogether there's well more than 200 terabytes. Oh, wow. Spread across about 80 drives. Damn. And the question is, how, how much work is it to get the entire network up? Now, the mm-hmm. entire network is generally only half the network because the other half of the network is backups, and you want to right. keep all your backups offline. Okay, yeah. so the full-blown 100 terabytes up all at one time, this network is hardly ever up 100% of the time. Yeah. Because it's my toy. Yeah. It's not a... But uh, the point that I'm making is, is that if I get an idea of what I'm going to do, when I actually go to implement that, it winds up never being the way that I thought about doing it. Yeah. Like I'm going to take that particular drive and I'm going to put it on this particular hub and set it on this particular part of the shelf and guess what? Doesn't happen. (laughs) Right. It always winds up doing some experimentation and the experiments are always right here in this present moment, not pre-planned. Yeah. Another example of that is, and and, uh, I've had several students who were architects or architectural students, and they admit that what I'm saying is profoundly correct. And that is, is that there has been no architectural drawings of a building that have ever been implemented. Yeah. 
they always have changes. That architectural drawing winds up being somehow different. Yeah. The builders build it different. They use the, the uh, architectural drawings as a plan, but the plan never goes according to plan. <laughs> oh, yeah. But yeah. they always have to find a way of doing this, that, and the other thing that the architect didn't think about. Because the, most architects are not even construction engineers. They're not builders. They've never had a hammer in their hand. They don't know what they're talking about. All they know how to do is draw lines on a computer screen. <laughs> yeah. And so that's a really good example of it also. Um, is that things don't go according to plan, but we spend so much time planning, which means then we spend a whole lot of time in disappointment. Yeah. If we don't plan, then when reality presents itself, we're fine with it because we didn't have a plan. It didn't go differently than what I wanted. Yeah. And but we need to practice this. This and is this what is to do with the skill of. Um, if it needs to be done, go do it. And if it doesn't, don't think about it. Don't think about it. And what that means then is that you can spend the time that you would have been thinking about it having a ball instead. Yes. Yeah, I'm looking at like two suitcases over there that need to be unpacked. I was like, well, they don't really need to be unpacked right now. <laughs> yeah, I don't have to unpack those things now, and I don't even have to think about unpacking them right now. Exactly. <laughs> That's the joy of it. It's not that you're, uh, you're not unpacking the suitcases because you weren't going to unpack them anyway. The problem is, is that we are not going to unpack them, and yet we continue to unpack them in the bind. <laughs> we do that with emails, we do it with going to the bank, we do it with going to the store, everything like that. We kind of pre-plan it, and then it never goes the way that we thought it would. I got a list behind the computer right here. It's like, oh, this is a bunch of things I need to do. I was like, well, yeah, but I wrote them down, so I don't need to think about them. <laughs> Well, that's actually a good idea. If you write it down, then you don't have to think about it. Yeah. You give yourself permission to just write it down and then it's gone. That's, yeah. that's, that's good. That's excellent. Yeah. So this is Anapanasati in the respect of the four um, items on the Eightfold Noble Path. Yeah. So let's cover the, the others just for completion's sake. We so have we right covered. Here Okay, I think I remember from last time actually. Um, right view, mm -hmm. and then right sati, right, uh, right effort, right, and and that's not like the, the trying kind of effort. That's just like, well, just just change it. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, I, I do, and, a good working definition of right effort yeah. is the least amount of work that it does that it takes yeah. to actually get the job done. Yeah, right view, right. Um, effort and then, uh, or I remember the four features though. I think, um, <laughs> gosh, because yeah, so then uh, I'm I'll just say the four features, um, because those are the, the four supports, but I can't remember the fourth one. But the fourth one was something like. Right samadhi, right gathering, right? That's a, that's a feature. Right, that's the fifth one. The fourth one, by the way, we've been talking about, but you just had a, a, a brain fog, yeah. I guess. Yeah. And that is right attitude. Right but attitude, of course. 
Yeah, 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 that's a, that's a, yeah, you asked me about, well, how do I get the right attitude? The answer is yeah. you, you get the right attitude with success over with and success. over and over again. You get the success. You know that you can do it. You know that as soon as you recognize that what's in the mind is not worth having, that, that thought's not worth having, then you can change it to having a thought that is worth having. And you can do that? Or, or, is that even... Can I do that with moods, right? Is that is that the is that you know instead of like you like, want to practice talking about the difference between we talking about the difference between grumpy and angry, right? If you mm-hmm. if I'm right, yes. Well, um, we have to make the distinction between internal and external. Yeah. Or are you in the world or are you in seclusion? Yeah. Oh, are you yeah. out on the freeway or in, are you learning in the parking lot? Yeah. That's the two uh, points. So. In our practice in the parking lot, or when we're in seclusion, we want to take a few minutes to guarantee over and over again a wholesome thought, to remember. This is why we actually put the breath into it, so that we develop sati with every breath. Sati on a long, deep in-breath, sati on a long, deep out-breath. Now that we've got the sati going, what are we going to do for the rest of this breath? Now that we've got a long, deep one, the answer is I'm going to enjoy the heck out of it. That's what I'm going to do. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm going to kind of stay with it and stay in this present moment as I'm breathing joyfully and staying in the senses. So this is how we get into that that state of, I could do this. I can be here now. As much time as I spent dreaming in the past and wallowing around in the future that doesn't ever come about, I can actually be here now, be in reality, be in the senses rather than concocting a reality. Rather than being in the dream. Rather than being in the dream, I'm in reality now. I'm back. I'm, I'm right here. And guess what? This reality is quite marvelous. Pretty good. Hey. Pretty good stuff. So we had right view, right sati, right effort, and right attitude. And that right leads at- to right samadhi, and that right action, right speech, organization and right of mind. Exactly. Yeah. And when we have that right organization of mind, that means that we're free from these woeful states. Yeah. We don't want anything. We don't get angry. Not in this particular moment. When we've got this thing together, when the mind is organized in that moment, you don't want anything. If you yeah. don't want anything in that moment, then you're unlikely to go kill somebody to get it. Yeah. Our, our, our morality becomes perfect simply because the mind is fit. Yeah. And that we make it fit. In fact, Bhikkhu Buddhadasa talks about a lot that uh, this, this practice is to make the mind fit for work so that we can have wisdom at that point of contact. When something yeah. impacts us, we got to see it. Right then. Yeah. Wake up to it. Okay. That's that's great. This is all right. So let's finish up now. The next time that you call, we'll go a little bit deeper into the actual practice of Anapanasati, but getting the foundation from the Eightfold Noble Path is absolutely necessary. And then we'll see that. Uh, that by practicing Anapanasati, we are actually fulfilling this Eightfold Noble Path. Yeah. Okay. That's good to know. That's great. Okay. Thank you. All right. So we will see you soon. And welcome yeah, back absolutely. to the UK. Thanks.
Warts and all. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Tamarata. Drew, we will see you later. See you. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Uh.